This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 122. Today is a rebroadcast of my number one recommended podcast episode. This is episode four originally, and it is all about the sensory systems. Y'all, we talk about how we cannot do emotional development work without first looking at sensory regulation. When we are talking about sensory systems here, we are talking about the central nervous system. I think sometimes that gets lost when we say sensory. People often think of a sensory bin that's filled with maybe rice or water or some sort of material. That is one of the sensory systems. There are seven others. We cannot do any of this work without having this as our baseline. I'm sharing my favorite occupational therapist with you, Lori Goodrich. In this episode, this is one of the first episodes I ever recorded for this podcast and still my most recommended. Lori is brilliant, and she's a human that I learn from every time I get to be around her, which is why she is one of the speakers at Mama's Getaway Weekend this fall. We have a few tickets left. If you're interested in that, you can go over to mamasgetawayweekend.com. She also is doing a workshop for teachers in our seed certification program where childcare and home daycare programs can get seed certified, a series of trainings from myself and other experts in the field of early childhood, and Lori is one of them. Before we dive in, I wanted to let you know that I am doing a free masterclass online workshop next week. It is on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Sunday. You can pick whichever one works best for you. I'm going to be diving into sensory regulation and how do we know what is at the root of a behavior? So we're looking at both emotional development and sensory development. I'm going to be diving deep into this bad boy. It's totally free for you guys, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Sunday, the 26th, 27th, and 31st of May. Come sign up at the link in my bio in Instagram or in our Facebook group. There is a mothership link at the top of our Facebook group. You can click on that and it'll be in there as well. 
All right, I can't wait to see you live next week. Let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm so excited for today's episode. In my journey, there have been so many people I've learned from. Parents, other teachers, pediatricians, directors, SLPs, this list goes on. But the woman I get to chat with today opened my eyes to a whole new way of looking at the tiny humans. Lori is an occupational therapist and is one of the first people I turn to when I need to talk through developmental and sensory questions. She's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to kiddos. Lori, thank you so much for hanging out with me today and letting me pick your brain. Why don't you start the listeners off with a little bit about yourself and what led you to where you are today? Thanks for the lovely intro, Alyssa. Um, as, she, as Alyssa mentioned, I'm an OT. Um, I've been doing the work that I've been doing for about 15 years. And what brought me to doing this kind of work is a, a really strong interest in science and also helping people. And I feel like OT kind of brings those things together. Um, and as my career has evolved, I realized how much I like to figure out the why of things. And that really speaks to me of what OT do is figuring out, looking at something and figuring out why is that happening? Um, and I think that's why Alyssa and I work so well together because I think we have the same mindset. Um, my, <laughs> background in yeah. my background in training is in sensory integration and also in neurodevelopmental techniques and oral motor therapy. So those are sort of my specific training areas that I've done extra work in after school. Awesome. That's uh, me. Can you explain to me just like what an OT does? <laughs> this like mystery question. I feel like even teachers in the field were like, is this an OT question? Right. I get that a lot. And I feel like every OT has probably practiced their sort of elevator speech of <laughs> OT, what's that? And then when you say you work with children, I've actually had people argue with me about what the word occupation means. <laughs> Um, mm. because most of us as adults think occupation is our jobs. It's the place we go to to do our job, whether we're an accountant or a teacher or a lawyer. Um, so I usually start with sort of letting them know um, what occupation actually means and what an occupation is in sort of layman's terms is it's all the stuff you want to be able to do during the day to interact mm. with other people and the community um, to kind of get what you need to do out of life. Um, for us, part of that is our jobs, um, but for a child, it's much different in terms of what are their occupations and what they have to be able to do during the day. It could be, I'm a student. It could be, I'm a friend. It could be, I, I'm learning to explore um, my environment. It could be a lot of different things. As kids get older, it becomes self-help skills and learning and being a student. Uh, but that word occupation seems to kind of get in the, the way for a lot of people. Um, what OT's background is, is we go to school and learn quite a bit about a wide range of things, including development through the lifespan, including neuro and anatomy, um, and a lot of work about sort of activity analysis, which is like breaking down a task. So our, my background is, an, I actually am trained to work with the entire lifespan um, that all OTs are, and usually people end up specializing in different areas. So 
OTs are healthcare practitioners that are promoting um, engagement in these occupations and figuring out kind of how to do so using different treatment approaches. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You guys are okay. amazing. You do like you're jack of all trades here. Yeah, I would <laughs> I, I would agree. I turn to... <laughs> <laughs> you're right, and because of that, I think the question um, of I get a lot of is this an OT thing? <laughs> <laughs> and that could be yeah, I feel like emotional. I yeah. that at you a lot. <laughs> right. And it does come up a lot. And I think even within the healthcare world, um, there's confusion around what OTs do. And I think the confusion is, is because we can work in a lot of different populations and settings. So I work primarily in a pediatric setting, although I do work with some adolescents and adults. Um, but if you, if you had a parent or a sibling that was had an injury and was in a rehab hospital, they have OTs there too. They just do something completely different because it's a different approach to um, um, what's, what the challenge is and how to promote it. So that someone that had a hip replacement, for example, we're obviously not going to do the same things with them than we do with a child that's learning how to crawl. Yeah. Um, so that it's that just very sense. different. Yeah, I think most people have even have heard the term, but I think because there's OTs that do different things, it can make it a little bit tricky. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like when I met you, I didn't realize how much everything I was doing really came back to what you were doing and how closely they were linked. Um, so right now I work in an infant toddler classroom and I kind of want you to chat about what that looks like in an infant toddler world. Like what is your role? What are you looking for when you come in the classroom? Um, excellent question. Um, usually what happens is I'm either coming in just to kind of eyeball kids or teachers sort of find up sort of, mm, I'm kind of wondering about this. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, OTs are the like, why is this happening people? So I'm going to kind of play detective and see if I can figure out what are some components that might be creating that situation. Um, some of the things that I would specifically look at are, um, looking at how they're processing sensory information, um, and maybe what they're sort of how they're responding to different inputs in those things. So I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about sensory just for a minute because I feel like this terminology gets kind of tossed around and maybe it's not 100% clear to people. Um, yes, please. So sen sensory processing, I guarantee everyone's doing it right now. <laughs> I know my own house, I have a air purifier going. There's a little bit of a hum. My body automatically says, not important, don't pay attention to it. So sensory processing helps us filter out extra information. It also helps us understand sort of the basis of who we are as a person in space. So right now, I'm actually I'm actually kind of sitting on a nice squishy couch, uh, and my body just adapts and forms to the position of the couch because it understands the properties of the touch system and where I have to put one hip and the other hip to kind of get myself comfortable. And that's understanding the qualities of the input, which is really important for, it can be important for sitting on a couch. It could also be really important for understanding my body to be able to go out there and explore and develop motor skills. Um, so most people are more familiar with that filtering piece, which is important for things like attention and comfort with experiences like maybe diaper changing um, and clothing. And then that understanding qualities is important more for how do I go out there and explore the world? How do I develop motor skills uh, and those kind of things? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes so much sense. Okay. <laughs> I feel so like I when I call you into my classroom, I'm often like, hey, there's this thing going on, and right. I'm trying to figure out the why. Can you bring your brilliant brain in here right. and help me figure out the why as well? Right. Um, and, so, and a lot of times, 
I feel like one piece of development feeds into the other piece. Um, so when I'm seeing like a language delay in a kid, sometimes I've learned from you and uh, chatting with you that it could really come back to sensory processing that if there's so much going on and they can't focus on me uh, and the sign language that we're bringing in or the conversation we're having, that they can't pick up that language. Can you kind of speak to that in better terms than I just threw at you? Right. I mean, I, I look at sensory processing if you're thinking about a pyramid. It's like the one of the cornerstones of pretty much everything you do during your life. And most of us just kind of just do it automatically and easily, which is how it's supposed to work. Um, we do see kids have a wide range of challenges that can come off of sensory processing. I think one of the cool parts of my job, but also one of the challenging things, is it can affect a lot of things, including this language piece that you're talking about, Alyssa. Um, when I think of the language piece, some of the core things that I think of are those kids that aren't filtering, like we were talking about earlier, and also are working just harder to understand their body. Right? So I'm... Yeah. I could I could be talking to you, walking around my house, cooking, doing all those things at the same time. And then and little, young children don't necessarily do that, but that idea of they're working so hard in one arena that they can't necessarily access that language piece mm-hmm. or or even maybe even be interested in engagement in the world because they're so overstimulated or they're just working incredibly hard um, to figure out how their how their bodies are working. And part of that, the tricky thing here is part of that there's some Lots of kids that are have typical development experience that, right? I'm sure you've seen kids mm-hmm. that, like, as their motor skills are going up, their language kind of goes down. Um, the thing that we see with children that are experiencing sensory processing issues is they can't always access that at sort of at all. Like, that developmental trajectory is not happening across the different areas. Yeah. So um, it's not just, a, oh, just for a little while, why that big motor leap was happening, their language kind of goes down a little bit. It's sort of a more, like, permeating challenge. Um, and then when kids get older, um, there's a speech therapist that I work with that we're, I feel like we're really refining this sort of concept, but for kids that have planning issues, so they don't really understand how to explore and approach tasks, as they get older, you'll see kids with planning issues sometimes talk like, I want to do that, or let's do, let's, they don't, they can't identify an action or what the toy even is called because they haven't mm. built up that repertoire of what their experiences are. Does that make sense? So interesting. Yeah. So what but, do you, yes, what do you do then? Right. Like if you see right. this kid who is having a hard time filtering, like what does your work look like with them? So when we do, um, if I was doing, there's a couple of different ways to think about it. Um, so I do in my clinic that I work at, we do direct intervention, which means we're using, we're doing a sensory integration approach to intervention, which means you're using sort of targeted enhanced sensory input to help rewire the central nervous system to be less responsive. So there's a couple different sensory inputs that most of us can relate to because it works for most people. Deep touch pressure, um, which is like pressure to your skin. It's why like a massage feels so good. Um, proprioception, which is input to your muscles and joints. I am not a runner, but I know runners really... <laughs> Like for preception, I was actually getting my uh, my uh, fix of this this morning, cleaning my house as I was getting ready to kind of shift gears. Um, so we do get a lot of those things normally during our regular experiences. That the children that we work with just don't get that from their everyday experiences to an extent degree. So we're going to use it to kind of use enhanced sensory inputs to organize that nervous system to calm it down, so they're not in that sort of constant I'm overstimulated state. 
It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns and it came in the mail and I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Does that make sense? And yeah, it does. So okay. if you are working with them, say on a weekly basis, mm-hmm. does their body then learn how to do that on its own? It does. It really, the work we do rewires the central nervous system, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's changing it's things. Really and that, yeah, it's pretty cool. And then the other thing that I'm sure you know from working with me is we do a lot of, we don't want to be like, oh, there's all these challenges. Sorry, you're going to have to wait a really long time for intervention to work. We want to think of how do we help a family or a teacher in the moment on how to support um, the child so that they can function to the best of their ability. And sometimes that's providing um, opportunities for regular sensory input during the day, if you've ever heard the term sensory diet. Um, if we think yeah. of we need nutrients for our body for, like, energy, we need ongoing sensory input to kind of keep our bodies in that regulated state. And a lot of kids with sensory processing issues just seem more uh, and more frequently. So working with things like doing squishes with pillows or having some muscle opportunities. I always see there's a little boy that's always carrying things up and down the stairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that idea of can, can he get enough input to get his body to be more focused so they can access the curriculum in the classroom. He's a little bit older than the kids that used to be. Uh-huh. And, and then helping parents and teachers understand, okay, that environment or the situation really doesn't work. We need to accommodate and change 
the situation because right now there's not a sensory diet by itself isn't necessarily going to like remediate everything. It's just going to help kind of in the interim. Um, yeah. How do we, how do we think about, Oh, that person doesn't really do well when there's a lot of people around them. So maybe they wait a little bit longer or they go first to go outside. So it's not them having to be in the bustle of getting changed with other kids when they're helping under snowsuits and things. Absolutely. I feel like I use a lot of like your tips and tricks um, around sleep, like when we're getting ready for sleep, making sure that our tiny humans have like their sensory diet occurs before then, right? So um, like before we even eat lunch, because sleep comes after lunch for us, we have roadie, which you introduced to us and is a game changer. Uh, we brought it into our room and, you know, we have a yoga ball and things that we can bounce the kids on. But the nice thing about roadie is that even my old infants uh, can climb on it by themselves and ride. And we see a such, we see such different kids when they get off and they're able to engage in a different way. And we really started using it as a part of our routine right before lunch. And so they would do roadie and then come to lunch and then go down for a nap. And it was so much easier to put these kiddos down for sleep, probably because they were more regulated. Right. I think you're right about that. Yeah, that's a a really good, simple strategy, right? It's an accessible toy. It's not a big routine. It's a small change that you can make that can have a really big um, outcome change for you and then potentially for if that works at school, that could possibly work at home, too, if sleep is tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I'd like to talk about a couple more, like, tips and tricks like that, like the roadie or things that uh, if our kids are having a hard time engaging, what are some things that we can provide for them that uh, can help build those tools for them, at least in the meantime? I know you mentioned, like, squishes with pillows, if you want to kind of expand on what that might mean. Sure, sure. So different, um, I'm going to speak very generally. Obviously, I haven't met every child, every person that's listening. Um, So these are very general ideas and maybe just some concepts to think about. One is I always just think promoting general like sensory input. A lot of active play is good for anybody, whether you have a sensory processing challenge or not. It's what we all grew up with um, running around in the backyard and those things. So I think just general activity level is is great to promote for kids. Um, But if someone's having maybe some suspected sensory processing challenges. Um, there's different things you can do for different challenge, different areas. So the sensory modulation piece, which is what Alyssa was referring to as sleep. That's our ability to, that, can I focus? Can I attend? Can my arousal level and it shift for necessary tasks? So for example, going to sleep or I was outside on the playground and now I'm coming in to have lunch. So can your arousal level shift? Those are some things that you might see that might be suggestive of challenges. There's some really basic things that really work well for a lot of people, tiny humans and big humans. <laughs> um, so that deep touch pressure is something that um, that can be really helpful. And what I mean by deep touch pressure is like firm, even pressure to the skin. Uh, and you can get that different ways. You can get it through um, physical contact as in like skin on skin. So a, a parent or a teacher massaging a child. Um some other really great ways to get it, yoga balls, which are, like, pretty commonplace these days out in people's homes, um, or big, like, couch cushions, like the ones that I'm sitting on, mm-hmm. are nice. And, they're nice. So if you use pressure on a child's body, so, like, put them between two couch cushions and put them under a yoga ball and, and squish them with your hands, 
beginning to get that deep touch pressure and that's a really calming inhibitory kind of input could be good to add before sitting down at the table if sitting at the table is hard before sleeping um for a lot of kids um, in school if they have a hard time shifting between like active play and quiet play those can be really easy things to add in um, um spandex sheets and like um, snuggling can be good so wrapping a child in a blanket and it could be just sitting with mom or a parent or a teacher um those can be opportunities that can provide that input and also provide a nice connection point during the day, I think, as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then for these the kids that are, like, having a hard time understanding where their bodies are, so some things that you might see with this are sometimes it's, like, motor skills are harder, so maybe they're not meeting, meeting milestones quite yet, or you see them just working harder maturely to figure things out, like they don't approach things, they're not exactly sure, they might be really clumsy. Um, those are some things that you might see. I think with younger kids, you often would see, um, like the kids that you're working with, um, them, the, the motor, the motor skills and quality aren't necessarily where we would expect them to be. Um, and then often their play skills are not exploring things in the way that you'd expect them to. Those can be signs that they're not quite understanding kind of where their body is in space. Um, yeah, we see, uh, sometimes kids who have a hard time initiating play so even right. if I like put paint on a paper they might not come over to the table even if they do want to play if we help them over to the table they might stay there for a while but they don't know how right. to kind of initiate that play right um, and also with conflict if somebody comes up and takes their toy they may be mad but they don't know how to communicate to get it back um, right. how to like engage in that interaction in a right. way that other kids might even just like hit or yell uh, our kiddos who have these sensory challenges will sometimes just stare at the kid who kind of took the toy and not know where to go next. Right. Um, which I didn't realize this is all stuff that like you kind of opened my eyes to. And now we know how to better support them and kind of help them learn to stick up for themselves in these situations and advocate right. for themselves. Uh, it's just, it's just so interesting how connected it is. Um, right. Yeah, I, I agree. And then you think of what that gives you access to, right? Sort of social participation and tr tr just trying, exploring the world and trying things. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, um, and that's that, those challenges can come from a couple of different areas from an OT sort of end. One is we, we look at that, remember how we were talking about like understanding the qualities of input? Uh, uh -huh. you're, you're sort of three basic systems. Two of them most people have never heard of. So I'll try to be really simple here. So you have, everyone knows about things like hearing and um, and vision. Those are really important senses also. But we have these three basic systems that let us know where our body is in space. It makes us feel safe and able to go out there and be like, I can do this. I can climb up on that structure. I can go be in that group of friends. Um, I can try different things. So if your touch system, which is... Um, I think that's pretty familiar, right? It's like I always think of the classic example I give as an adult for this is if you put your hand in your in your pocket or your purse, you would understand like a quarter versus a paper clip. So mm -hmm. that touch awareness is really important for understanding the qualities of how you're interfacing with um, other objects and things in your environment. And it gives you a sense of like sense of self. I have a map of where my body is. I know where I end and the world begins. Um, and then proprioception is just like a terrible word it's pretty much just ignore that word it's that's like receptors in your muscles and joints that say i am here so i can do things like walk up the stairs without looking and touch my nose i can touch i can close my eyes and touch my nose i know where i am 
in relation to my other body parts. Um, and I'm just going to giving a quick intro because it's going to give a clue into what the activities might be for this. So don't yeah. mind my my little nerdy sensory comment. No, uh, I the love third it. One, <laughs> uh, and then the, the third one is your vestibular system, which some people are familiar with. It's pretty much your movement system. So those three systems work together for us really to understand our bodies of I am here and I know where I am and I can move through the environment to do things. And that could be crawling. That could be I can put on my own pants. It could be I can negotiate through that group of kids on the playground. It could be a lot of things. Um, So when I think of the kids that don't understand where their bodies are in space, I'm thinking of activities and those three systems that are going to help promote them understanding where their bodies are so that they can access exploring and doing whatever capacity feels meaningful to them. So the activities we just talked about that were the deep touch pressure ones um, from the previous um, discussion would also apply here. Also doing things like the sensory bins that you see in the classroom, those are really great. Um, I always think as much body parts as possible. If you're at home doing those things, doing water play and having like things like paintbrushes that kids can like brush on their bodies on, on, on their skin is a great way of promoting that tactile awareness. Um, proprioception is just active play. So it could be rough and tumble stuff. Um, it can be more opportunities for things like climbing, um, those kind of activities. Um, and then vestibular is movement. So the most common one is swings, but also when kids are little, you can like pick them up and dip them in different directions um, Rody is a good example of um, the muscle work, which is the proprioception and um, vestibular together. So th- there's different activities. So I always think when I'm thinking of kids broadly, I'm thinking, are they getting those general inputs um, enough and then following their lead with what feels comfortable? So if a kid really doesn't like spinning, it's not me spinning, spinning, spinning them. It's, oh, that's actually not comfortable. I'm going to follow their lead with what feels safe for them. Hmm. Does, does that make sense? That makes total sense. Um, so does this also like play a role? I'm thinking of like their like physical development. And I have mm-hmm. some kids who um, their posture is just so different. And I, they tend to be kiddos for me who have sensory pro- processing challenges. How does that play a role in this? Um, it's for death. So this, yeah, no, it totally does. The sensory understanding qualities of sensory input. Those basic systems are what creates the ability for motor function. Um, so things like understanding where up is, which is your movement system, feeds neurologically into your postural muscles and lets you know where up is, and those muscles start to activate and work. Um, hmm. So when you have sort of challenges with understanding qualities, it's of sensory input. It's not just um, it's not just, oh, I don't understand it, I understand I have a body. It's there's motor actions and motor functions that come off of those systems working. So some really common ones we see are um, kids with postural-based challenges um, that movement systems really not feeding into their, their, their trunk muscles to say, this is where up is and move. And then also, if you don't feel comfortable with movement and don't understand it, you're less likely to want to move through space because it doesn't feel safe. So it's sort of this uh-huh. interesting cycle of, I'm unsure of myself. I don't want to go out there and move. There's, I know you, there's a couple of kids that I've seen um, that are that are much younger that I, 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 they're sort of the potted plants. They can sit, but they're just like sitting there. And that idea of my my muscles aren't quite strong enough for this, and I don't really feel safe in my own self to go out there and move. 
um, through space because my movement system is not giving me good information. And then, therefore, they'll have practice and opportunities to develop those postural muscles in addition to them sort of already being a little bit sort of at risk for that being a challenge area. Uh-huh. And does that um, also yeah. feed into kiddos who, like, kind of find a different way to move? For instance, I have, you know, seen kiddos who scoot instead of crawl or, or they crawl, but it's not that typical crawling position. Um, they might drag one leg or something. Um, does that all feed into the system as well? It, it can. I mean, kids can have, there's, we're talking, I'm talking primarily about kids with sensory issues. There can be lots of other challenges that kids have that creates that. But for the profile that we're talking about, kids that have more sensory processing these challenges. Um, so your your movement system is really important for a lot of things. It's important for posture. It's important for um, bilateral coordination, which is using both sides of your body together. Um, also important for eye skills. But that bilateral coordination piece, you'll see kids doing all sorts of different crawling things. Um, sometimes because they're they're weak and they can't get the right muscles to work. Um, sometimes because they don't have that good coordination of both sides of their body. And also sometimes kids that don't want their head um, in different positions will stay in upright and do like the bum scooching. Um, so it's a little different for each kid. When people, when parents see things like that, I know my own nephew who's now five, um, he crawled with one leg, with one knee down and one foot. Uh-huh. Always, always. And I remember my, my my mother was his grandmother was not sort of like, what is that? And it was like the only marker for him that was a little bit, it was just a little bit different. I remember talking to one of my um, my professors or an instructor I had at the time, and we both kind of agreed it was like a one a one point thing. It wasn't that big of a deal. So one thing, small thing. I I do think good crawling is important, but it's important for us not to get stuck on like one little teeny thing. Um, and so. It can be a sign of something. It could be just, it, it could be, I don't want to say it could be nothing, but it could be nothing. But if yeah. we're thinking so, about, so if they had a pattern. Like that, right. If it's like that one-off, it, it's right. different. But if it would then be com- like combined with other things, we might look at it differently. Right. Right. So we're always looking for that. Remember how we were talking about, we look for the why. We're also looking for yeah. patterns. Of If a child is having an issue with one isolated thing, I mean, most of us, right? I mean, if, I, we, we always joke in my in my clinic that all of us, did we all end up in this field because we all have some sensory processing thing? Or when you talk to lots of other people, you realize, like, everyone's got something. It's sort of how much does it matter? So for my nephew, mm-hmm. he can ride a bike. His, his gait is fine. Everything else is fine. So to him, I look back and I'm like, that was a good experience for me to have to be like that that one thing wasn't necessarily indicative of like lifelong challenges or anything because it was one thing. Um, I think the thing that I know from working with, um, I work with um, kids that most of the kids that I see are between maybe um, two and eight. And then there's sort of fading number of kids after that. But I have worked with a decent number of teenagers and adults and they can, I think what we know from working with them and a lot of this stuff doesn't actually always go away. Um, so it's good for us to, as, as clinicians, for, as therapists, to say, okay, we know, I'm sure there's people that nothing, it became nothing. And also for some people, like, it's challenges that it are compounded over a long period of time. So working with adults that um, probably could use intervention when they were kids. Uh-huh. I don't know if that feels yeah, helpful so at all it, to include here. Yeah, no, for sure. Is it... Uh, I mean, a lot of what we're doing in early childhood, we know that we form 
90% of the brain by the time these kids are five and 80% by the time they're three. And so when we mm-hmm. look at intervening at all in development, that's what we're looking at is that we know right. it's so much easier and faster to make these changes right. when we do them younger than if we wait and kind of try to go back and, and reset these neural pathways. Right. So uh, it sounds like you're seeing a lot of the same stuff where maybe as a teenager, it'll take longer and it'll be harder to kind of set new patterns than if we would have worked with that child when they're one or two. Right. And we still see pretty good, the neuroplasticity research, which I'm not going to put a quote sitting here because I don't have it in front of me. I think they're really not- noting that the, the change really is possible to the lifespan, which is fantastic news. I think yeah. the main reason for me that the early intervention is so important is um, when we work with um, clients that are older, they've now been coping with whatever this has been for a very long time. Okay. Um, and what that means is a lot of a, a lot of other challenges that exist because of that. So um, I, my cousin, who's a couple years younger than I am, um, he's in his 30s, came to our clinic. And the reason he ended up there was I was talking about my job when I first started working. And he was like, I think I have that. <laughs> and sure enough, he had some distributor processing challenges and some planning challenges that were in the mix. Uh, he's of someone that ended up having, we see a lot of sort of more like anxiety, uh, uh, not to scare anybody, but depression. Um, if you're coping with something for a long enough period, usually you're going to see other symptoms that stem from that sort of like yeah. drop, drowning in the demands. No, I, I think that's very helpful. Uh, okay. I think it's good to, I didn't understand kind of what the, what it would look like long term for people and how it could affect them longer term and I think that those are are good things to look at I mean we don't want parents or teachers to overanalyze every situation but to really just be aware of uh, what early intervention or you know just even if you don't go through the early intervention system but intervening earlier with with kiddos in general uh, how that can affect them for the positive even when they're like going to kindergarten, right? Things that they might not have to, at that point, right. still be working through or coping right. with. Um, right. Yeah, I think right. that's very beneficial. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, 
we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Yeah, I think our, when I think of, because um, I work in a clinic and not in a school, um, school intervention is a little bit different than us and that their primary um, way of approaching things, which is also great, is how are the children functioning right now? Otherwise, mm-hmm. it could be like, well, maybe there's going to be an issue. We'll just do therapy for everybody. But right. we in the clinic have, the, which I totally get that. Like, I totally understand why schools are like that because every, where, would, where would it end, right? Right. Um, but for us, we have the luxury of when we work with families, we can really talk about and be open about, like, potential challenges that can, can exist. We're not 100% sure for each client. There's not, like, a, it's a definite. But when I think of um, younger kids, if they're, if they're having a hard time when they're younger with language or social engagement or emotional intelligence or motor skills, I, I will, in my head, rack through what does this look like? as they get older. Maybe they have some planning challenges when they're younger. Planning is the foundation for executive functioning, which we all know is a huge part of learning and being able to function mm-hmm. in school. There's no way to know 100% if that can happen, but I've worked with enough older clients that have that profile that I at least have it in the mix. And I'm honest with families about, there's a, it's hard to know exactly, but it can impact things like social emotional development significantly and learning um, and those kind of things. So it's, it's just good to think of those things in the mix of, like, why does it matter? Um, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's the same for every single person. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, sure. I know you've been doing work around eating and, like, oral motor. I have no idea what that looks like or how that relates <laughs> to OT. <laughs> uh, can you explain that to the listeners and sure. me? <laughs> sure. So eating and mealtime participation is another occupation that we have. Um and it's one of the few things that you can't really avoid doing, right? Like mm. if kids can't function at birthday parties or a certain sport, you can you can kind of get around those things, right? But eating yeah. happens multiple times a day, um, and there's a really big emotional component that comes into it for the for kids and quite frankly for parents. Um, a feeling yeah. like parents feel like the primary important part of their job is being able to feed their children. Um, and so we, this is actually one of my sort of areas of interest in work, uh, and it just, I think it was just based on the nature of the clients that I was, I was seeing years ago. So eating is a pretty complex skill, and I think if most of the families that I work with, if I ask them what they thought the challenge was, they usually think it's sort of the, that sort of sensory sensitivity. My body is over-responsive to texture or taste or whatever, which is often true, um, so my job, again, as an OT, why are they having the challenge? So I would look at a variety of components that come into mealtime performance. So I would look at, I would, it's usually interviewing around the sensitivity. We're not trying to ask them, right. let's torture you and see how this food feels. We're also looking <laughs> at that sort of, that sort of sensory awareness motor piece that comes in. Is your tongue moving to the side to chew? Um, can you manage different size bites? Do you even know how big the food is that goes in your mouth? Do you know when it's clear and out of your mouth? Um, is your swallowing mechanism working right? Uh, so 
based on what we were talking about before, we look at the mouth, but we also look at how the body and the central nervous system are processing information. That gives us a clue that might be creating some motor challenges that are going on in the mouth. So we're going to look at the sensitivity piece. We're going to look at the motor piece. We're going to look at some other things that are really important for eating, like sex swallow breed um, and postural control for things like being blessed in the chair uh, and how all these things interplay together and interfere with function. Some really common things that we see with kids are really select diets um, or kids that are grazers, the kids that can't eat a full meal, uh, some mm-hmm. kids with safety issues that they're overstuffing their mouth, uh, those kind of things. So the parents give us a food list and our job is to figure out why, why are they not eating things and then how do we put together a treatment plan to work towards food. Amazing. Yeah. It's so pretty cool. That. It's something I never thought of. Yeah. It's, I think, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating as a clinician for a couple of reasons. One is it's a very concrete thing, um, and it's so, com- it's so complex. Um, I think the, um, my colleague and I are working on um, sort of figuring out, we're, we're writing sort of a manual on how to do more like systematic treatment for this, because what happens is there's a lot of different modalities out there, but no one's kind of bringing them together to say, first you do this, and then you do this, or how do you plug in what you're learning into sort of a framework. Um, because I think what we're seeing is a lot of um, a lot of people are like, oh, they're not eating. Let's practice eating. And you're like, e. Right. It's kind of like if a child's eyes aren't working the way that we want them to, practice catching a ball is not going to do anything, <laughs> right? Right. So you have to think of where, what, what is the body doing, and how is it interpreting information, and then how do we work on those in the central nervous system to give them the best foundation as possible um, to eat. And this applies to all age brackets. This is Babies up through, um, we work with young adults that are restrictive eaters. Um, I would think, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. So I hope that, does that answer your question? Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, so I have, a, I have like two more questions for you here. Sure. Just sure. An, another topic that I've just been wondering about is how, um, I, I worked with a kiddo once who had some sensory uh, challenges and was constantly sick. Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's related to like postural stuff. I don't know. Like what, I, it was just something that I was really curious about. And I guess still am curious about like how could OT, like the OT game here play a role in sickness? Okay. So or does it? Like it can, it, again, we, it could be, um, uh-huh. So everyone, everyone cough right now. <laughs> um, that's your posture muscles will let you do that and having good like rib mobility. Um, so if you, if you do have postural challenges, it can create, I can't clear things. Um, uh-huh. and I can't get things out. Um, so other things that I've had with other um, clients that I work with, one is kids that have oral sensitivities, don't like having their teeth brushed and, mm can have oral hygiene issues, which can lead to other sicknesses. Um, And the other one that I feel like this, again, there's no, there's no like evidence on this, but it's my own sort of thought process is um, I think some of these kids, their bodies are constantly under stress, um, Uh stress from overstimulation, stress from what they're being asked to do or can't do, how hard they have to live to do things that should be easy and automatic. So I think Uh sometimes their bodies are just under sort of a constant stress. And we know as adults, when we're stressed, that's when you get sick. Yeah. Those are some, like, basic principles 
obviously there's lots of other things that make kids sick, right? Um, but yeah, those are some sure. of the ones that I, I often think about um, when it happens. Also, plenty of kids that don't get sick, so it's not a it's not always right. a 100% sure fire. Right. But if those are things, then not clearing the um, not clearing things when they're sick, I feel like is one that I've had with a couple of kids that have some pretty big postural um, challenges. So that's mm-hmm. an important one to be thinking about in terms of their health and wellness. Yeah. So a good point, a good point, Alyssa. I know it's that. I, it's OT. I feel like the whole like, does OT do this? You're like maybe. <laughs> Sometimes that's how you're one of, one of right. my first people I turn to. So I'm like, eh, yeah. this could be an OT yeah. thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, and and, it's, and it's, I'm a fellow Y asker. So, yeah, why, why, why? We go back and and forth on the why. (laughs) Right. And sometimes I think even um, families that I work with, um, either at school or at my clinic, sometimes it's not an OT thing. And I think one of the things that we, I know I always feel like is important is being informed on types of other types of practitioners that it might be (laughs) at their Mm -hmm. alley of, that's not me, but I know where, I kind of know what you're looking for. um, Because I want to make sure we're doing best practices with, could I figure it out? Or if hey, this other person's already an expert in that, um, or if kids aren't eating, that pulling in other team members like a dietitian um, to help support sort of um, sort of multi uh, a multidisciplinary approach for some of these more for these bigger challenges. The food one's a big one. Um, a lot of clients that we work with have significant social emotional challenges that are either related to their um, their sensory processing challenges and those challenges, but also a lot of kids that have attachment. Um, and trauma histories. Um, so the idea of those aren't things that we would necessarily, we, we treat them informed of what their challenges are. We want to make sure we're playing with other team members. Um, so, but sometimes because we're jack of all trades, people are like, oh, that's OT. Be like, it's OT plus, <laughs> plus other people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and I think what you like highlighted here is that it affects so many other different areas of development that it often could be multifaceted. Uh, I've worked with kiddos who I had, I had a family who had a, a baby who was having feeding issues and the feeding team consisted of the pediatrician, uh, a lactation consultant, an SLP, and an OT. And everybody mm-hmm. kind of came together to look at how are all of our disciplinaries feeding into this. Right. Um, and it's, it's amazing how, how much it pairs together. And, you know, I do work in emotional development and emotional development with the sensory development and language are all tied together. Um, so it's never just, oh, we just have a sensory issue. It's okay, now how is that feeding into other things? And how do we then best support this kid in in all areas of development? Right, right. Yeah. Awesome. I well, I guess from here, I, we just threw a bunch of information at at families, uh, <laughs> I don't want people leaving like, oh no, uh, my kid needs all the things. Uh, what could parents do next? I guess, where do parents turn, even if they have questions or they wanna check out more resources um, on OT specific things? Or if they did notice like, yeah, every single morning putting clothes on my kid is the biggest challenge ever and it's coupled with X, Y, and Z, all of these other things that are happening. Uh, and they had any concerns, where would they look next to see, to kind of look into this further? Right. So um, a couple of things. One is there's some great books out there. Um, the Out of Sync Child is sort of the classic um, book that was written by Carol Kranowitz, who's an OT. So that's a great one. Um, the other one that I really like is Sensory Smart Parenting. And that author is Lindsay Beal. And that one was co-written with um, 
a parent whose child that therapist treated, which I thought was parts of it are, which I thought was kind of neat to get some parent perspective mm-hmm. in it, which was really nice. So those could be helpful if you just kind of want to learn more or you're thinking, hmm, is this my kid? Um, so those are good um, ways of collecting some information. The clinic I work at is located in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, we're called OTA the Kumar Center. Um, it's formerly OTA Watertown up until about five years ago. And we have a couple resources on our, um, like how do I know is that on our website. We also do really detailed intakes with families um, if they're considering intervention. So what that is, is you go to our website and it says, I want to look to initiate services. You fill out some paperwork. I've actually had some families, if they're thinking about if a sibling has a challenge, be like, you can just go and fill out the paperwork. And if you decide, I don't want to send this thing, you don't have to send it in. But it's a checklist to get you thinking about some of the things that you might be seeing with your child. Um, uh-huh. And then if you decide that you want to send it in, you get a phone call um, free of charge with one of our fabulous intake therapists. Um, so that could be a person that you could ask questions to before you decide to do anything. Uh, uh-huh. So that can be a really good resource. Um, but so I the filling out the checklist and thinking, is there enough stuff on here for me to think I want to move forward or is it just more of an FYI? Um, kind of thing. Those can be some really, um, some really easy resources. Um, the one thing I caution about if you do any web searches is sensory processing disorder is very common with autism. They are not, they don't go together all the time. So you can have autism and not have sensory processing issues. You can have sensory processing issues and not have autism. So I always, um, the parents know when they're reading, it's very hard not to go down that sort of rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, you can have them experience with the exclusive from uh, other diagnostics. So please, when you read that, just try to separate that out in your head when you're thinking about your own uh, your own child. Uh, we don't do intervention differently for different diagnostic sensory processing work and sensory processing work. Um, so, so those are some potential resources. And if it felt helpful, um, if talking more about activities or anything comes out of feedback, I would be happy to do another podcast to um, to share more information if that felt like it would be uh, that would be helpful. Awesome. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. I will link to those books and to your center in the show notes so that anyone who's like driving or has a sleeping child in their arms right now and can write that down. Uh, <laughs> what did she say? And can go back and find it. Uh, awesome. Lori, thank you so much. You are amazing. And I feel like I could sit and chat with and learn from you all day. Uh, oh, thanks so thanks much for Alyssa. hanging out with us today. Thanks for hanging out with me. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search seed and sow colon voices of your village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, 
is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.